0: This is the podcast, Creative at the Wheel, and I'm Julie Clare. This podcast is all about the role of inspiration, serendipity, and spirituality in a creative's life, both in the studio and in the workplace. I talk with artists and creative professionals of all ages and backgrounds on what it takes to live a fulfilling creative life.
1: I'm trying to think of of a word that conveys, uh, you know, a shift in your perception of your own life. Uh, that uh, it's kind of like a an explosion from the inside out, realizing that the person that you have been is only a tiny part of who you really are and it just starts to open up in all directions
0: today's guest is bill page and we're talking in his home in abiquiu new mexico i've known bill for many years and i'm so excited about having this time to talk with him bill has experiences that range from being a superintendent of schools in the northeast To leading breakthrough conversations, exploring gender and race in organizations globally. To being immersed in creative process in his beautiful art studio, whether he be painting or writing, singing or moving, dancing. Our conversation spans his transformational creative journey over five decades and I couldn't be happier to jump in. To start, Bill, I know uh, we've been talking some. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear just uh, if you could give me just a really basic arc of your professional. You know, who you were at thirty, and then who you are now. Just in like sixty seconds. Like when you were thirty, you were. What were you involved in? What What did your life look like? And what does your life look like now?
1: Oh. Well, when I was 30, uh, I would, had been married for seven years, had two sons, and, uh, was a classroom teacher, um, Let's see, 30, uh, would be nine, let's, uh, I gotta think about what year that is, uh, 30 years old, um, 1966, right? I was born in 1936, so 1966, and, uh, at that point, uh, I was teaching uh, in a high school at Exeter, New Hampshire, and uh, I was both the science department head at the high school, and I was teaching, uh, walking across the street and teaching geology at Phillips Exeter Academy. Uh, oh my! Gosh. And and at the same time, uh, I was really having a good time with an innovative teaching project for science for ninth graders, uh, which was making that transition from uh, the tra- traditional, you know, book and classroom a uh, book and answering questions and um, the uh, kind of demonstrations to creating a hands-on science classroom for ninth graders, and it was called the Princeton Project, and it involved teachers from all over the country who were trying to make that transition to a much more activity-oriented science classroom. Uh, It was also happening in some of the uh, other courses like chemistry and, and biology at the same time.
0: So, you know, even that, I would just love to put that in here is that how is it that you weren't, um, I'm putting the just in quotes here, just a teacher, uh, but that you were already at 30 years old involved in this innovative Princeton project uh, and being kind of one of the first to create this different structure of the classroom. And I know you said it was very experiential. How how did that happen?
1: Well, I... (laughs) I think uh, I was, when I was working in the high school, um, I get into conversations in the faculty room with other teachers and with the principal and the assistant principal and so forth. And I kept questioning, uh, I, you know, the whole business about reading a chapter and answering questions and that kind of passivity on the part of students uh, it's just seemed to me to be falling short. The other thing is that I was a geology major, and I did a lot of hands on work at the University of Massachusetts When I majored in geology we 'd go out uh, into the field, uh, collecting fossils and so forth and it was uh, a and, and even in the uh, laboratories we 'd always be working in there with specimens and it felt very interactive. And it was so much in contrast to what these ninth graders were having. And so I kept raising questions. And I think the principal, who had a friend at Princeton, and they were creating this project to change the format for ninth grade science, uh, that he sort of was sparked by some of my questions. And he asked me if I'd like to participate in the project. And we went from there.
0: I just, I, I just love that story. For me, what I hear is that you were already enough visible, or say, in that, in that place and time, as a teacher, you, who you were, was visible enough to others for somebody to come in and say, "Hey, we've got this position with this Princeton project. I think this is something you would flourish in. Are you interested? Um, Isn't that? That's pretty much how it went. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, uh, I mean, to me, it's like, wow, you know, because I, I talk with other 30-year-olds and it's like, how do I, how does the next move for me happen, right? How do I show up? How does my, how do I get this next job or this next position? Like, how do I do it? And I just want to say that I hear serendipity. And I also hear that you had some people around you that could recognize this spark or this uh, something in you there that was suited for something else
1: yeah and as i you know as i thought' I've thought about it over the years, I think one trait that I guess has served me well is that I'm very transparent uh I'm always asking questions and uh, showing my curiosity and, and I don't worry too much about being wrong or overstepping and yet. I'm not talking about an aggressive thing. I'm talking more just a playful exploration all the time of what are we doing? Why are we doing it? uh, Is there another way that would be more interesting? That kind of thing.
0: I love it. Okay, I have to ask you please tell us something about your childhood and what that might have to do with this quality that you speak of, um, you know, I think sometimes if, if we go back and, and just say, what is it in my childhood that reminds me of this trait that I have that's kind of done me well? Um,
1: well, I was born in 1936, which means that I grew up uh, in the 40s. I grew up during the Second World War. Uh, the adults in my life were sh- very stressed having you know their work and the war going on and uh, a lot of things up in the air so as a kid wherever we lived and we moved a lot when i was a kid wow, we lived in a that. trailer uh, a lot of the times and we moved we we moved from one trailer park to another and and but as a kid we were always creating our own play i didn't except for school i wasn't in structured programs if You know, if we wanted to to go fishing, we'd wander out into the Everglades on a railroad track and we'd fish off of it. Or if we wanted to play baseball, we'd create our own baseball field. Uh, It was always uh, kind of exploring and messing around. And uh, Now, it also had some dangers that went with it. But I think uh, my parents were not very structured. They simply, you know, we get up in the morning on a day without school and have breakfast and be gone until suppertime. You, know, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. they'd be playing out there.
0: Why does that make me laugh now, given the world that we're in and all of oh, I know uh, of it's a different my world. friends, yeah. it's a different world. Yeah. But, okay, so we've got this already in the room, this exploring quality in nature. You grew up that way some, and there you are um, at 30, and you've been invited into this Princeton project, and you're beginning to be um, professionally already innovation coming in there. Yeah, and um, what then would you say, you know, from there to this creative play streak for its own sake that wasn't necessarily merged with your what you're doing for your day job when did that show up
1: well I think that uh there were some some steps in
0: yeah you know for example
1: yeah uh, after in 1968 I was asked to join a project to create activity-centered classrooms in uh, southeastern Massachusetts with uh, teachers in the elementary, you know, grade seven to nine. And uh, playing, I would go into the classroom and I'd help those teachers. A lot of them were nuns. Uh, And we'd just, i get in the classroom and we'd get this rapport and we'd start saying, how can we make this classroom more interesting? And And we'd sort of play with the classroom, and then I would visit them and be in there with the kids.
0: Uh, so you would be on site on... with them. Huh? You would be on site with them sometimes oh, too, right. as yeah, teachers. Oh, right. Yeah, travel
1: around. Uh, wow. You know, New Bedford, Fall River, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, all the Cape, and it was it was, uh, it was There were three of us in the project, and uh, and so that really opened me up. Uh, to a lot of possibilities about what could happen in a classroom space, uh, even though that was part of my job. And uh, and then, uh, you know, eventually I be- uh, became a superintendent of schools, and I- And now,
0: took- Bill, let me just interrupt. How much of that do you think you becoming superintendent was because of your reputation for being innovative and and- working with people the way you had been here, you know, finding Uh, new ways to be in the classroom.
1: I I would say it was 90% because the the guy that hired me, the superintendent, I went in as a super assistant superintendent for the first year and a half. And the guy who hired me was looking for someone who could, you know, go into classrooms, had good rapport with teachers uh, and, you know, it's not so much that hierarchy or the, the the supervisor or the administrator or the person in charge, but the person who could really bond with teachers, and uh, and so he really hired me uh, to bring that kind of energy in into the school system. Which do I do. Do you did. have a
0: do, do you have a sense how typical that was at that time for someone to be looking for a supervisor with those qualities? Um, is it mostly due to the that era and that time period? Or do you think it was also very unusual in, uh, when was that? Was that in the seventies or?
1: No, that actually, well, let's see. Yeah, it was, it was 1971. Yeah. 1971. It, it was unusual, but, but things were stirring in this, you know, in the late sixties and early seventies. Yeah. So there was a lot of innovation taking place, particularly in science education, uh, and, you know, they they had uh, programs in language, whole language, uh, classroom teachers at the elementary level were getting a lot of encouragement to open up their class. So I would say the fact that he hired me was unusual, but stuff was stirring.
0: The mood was there. Yeah,
1: yeah right. Yep.
0: All right, so there you are, superintendent. At that time, did you have uh, a a painting or writing life on the side, or what was life like?
1: There was no side. (laughs)
0: There was no side.
1: I was working 70 or 80 hours a week, and, of course, by then we had three kids and, uh, you know, our our whole home life and so forth. And, you know, the the school system, 4 or 5,000 kids and, you know, two different school boards. Uh, it was a very, very demanding job. Uh, and I stayed in that job until
0: 1980.
1: Wow, um, yeah. And so, <clears throat> but I, I really uh, enjoyed being with the teachers and being in that job. But I discovered during that time that there was something else in me that wanted to live. And, uh, I got into something called reevaluation counseling, uh, (laughs) where, uh, you would pair off with another person and, uh, you get together maybe once or once a week or so. And each person would speak uncensored for an hour while the other one listened. And, uh, I remember I had a session. I happened to be a school board member. It, it was just serendipity. But uh, one time, in the midst of a session, in about 1979, I'd said to her, "You know, I think I'm all done being a superintendent of schools. I think there's another whole world out there for me, uh, and I I need to I need to go find it." And uh, and so she helped me. Uh, as a school board member, set up an exit gate and and work my way through. Um,
0: Did you have something else planned by that point? That it was pretty smooth, or was that a risk?
1: It was a huge risk, but I had been I had gotten involved in something called futures planning, and uh, I had been doing consulting and planning with other organizations while I was superintendent. And uh, there was a a friend. Uh, And she invited me into school systems uh, to to get involved in planning. There was a place called the Center for Constructive Change uh, headed by a man named Fred Jervis. And he, uh, uh, Fred uh, had lost his sight when he was younger. And I invited him over to to our school system to do some planning. And then he and I kind of hooked up and uh, I started going on the road with him right after I left the superintendency. And I went, when we did some work together at Ford Motor Company. And then I went to Yale New Haven Hospital. And pretty soon, I was out there doing futures planning in a whole lot of ways. Uh, and
0: futures planning was working with um, not just students then, with working with... Oh, no, well,
1: now I'm talking about, uh, you know, uh, corporate executives, organizational groups, uh
0: And you'd be helping them
1: Helping them create a future. We we use back planning. We would would create a vision of the future and help them back plan to get there. Um, So, yeah.
0: So really personal connection, right? There is this person in this uh, pretty cool sounding uh, therapy or counseling, I guess, situation who hears you and happens to be on the school board and happens to kind of say why not why can't this be a path out for you or a new transition I mean
1: yeah she was helpful in the transition and and she had become I mean she was part of the uh, futures planning that we did in the school system so she was she was tuned in
0: when you think of your life in terms of courage um, do you think this was one of those times that you were pretty courageous or was it easier than that
1: Uh, courage is a funny word uh you know I grew up in an era where courage was facing physical you know things that are physically threatening
0: uh yeah
1: yeah that was courage uh I I guess I'd be willing to say that it, the leap out of the you know let me say it a different way I grew up as a lower-middle-class, blue-collar kid. I was a vocational agriculture student. And uh, for me to end up as a superintendent of schools uh, in my 30s was quite a great thing from that point of view. You know, it was, wow, how did this happen? This was quite wonderful, even to get a college education. And, And for me to walk away from that into an open space where I, the future was self-employed uh, and wide open. Yeah, I, I guess I, I'm going to call that an act of courage or insanity. Maybe that was it, too. Because I had, you know, a family. three kids and so forth and a wife. And so it wasn't any small thing. It was a big jump.
0: And these and jumps. It was an jumps. incident.
1: Uh, there was an yes. incident that took place yeah. in my office that was a catalyst. I was sitting in my office one day. It was 1979. This is before the conversation with Marion and reevaluation evaluation counseling. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, the office walls started to close in on me. They actually felt like they were moving towards me. And I remember having this tremendous spike of anxiety and, and getting up out of my seat and, and saying, oh, my God, what is happening here? And when I talked about that in the counseling session, the wall is moving, I mean, how much, how big a message do you need to get that something needs to change, you know?
0: Now, were you paying attention to your dreams at that point, or was that not happening? Because that—that to me sounds like a waking dream, where you experience that dream yeah. quality in daytime.
1: I think I probably was paying attention, but not at the level that I did later. I—I I didn't realize the power of some of the dreams of what I didn't realize the connection between dreams and the sort of. Uh, the information that you get about which part of you fits and which which doesn't and where you're struggling. And uh, that information coming from the unconscious, I was just barely beginning to tune into that. Uh, I think that's part of the reason that the walls coming towards me was so graphic. It took a pretty strong message.
0: God, you know, that... um idea of a nightmare almost being a loud message, uh, you know, let's make this really, uh, really clear. Um, for some reason I, it's, uh, that story is kind of, it's really moving to me. I feel it in my body. I mean, to imagine sitting there, being there in the office and having that experience and you like, there's, there's no way of brushing that under the carpet. And that's, uh, and so then, then you had the experience, um, and then you made this big jump. Yeah. And you're self-employed yeah, into, self,
1: into self-employed, yeah. right. And uh, and while I was out there in the oh what it's about in the uh, early 80s, uh, the woman who was a friend of mine that I'd been doing some other consulting with asked me to come and do a planning session with a group of women, actually there were two or three men there involved, who were had been at the leadership of the women's movement in the 70s and in the early 80s, and they were starting an organization which they called New Dynamics, which was going to and was actually doing then uh, working with gender issues in the workplace. And, we'd, and they would go in and they'd get groups of people together, uh, men and women, and they literally facilitate... Uh, Uh, face-on-face address of what was happening in the gender dynamics in in large corporations. And so I went and worked with them for a weekend. And as I was about to leave, they said, we want you with us. Uh, And I, uh, there were very few men who had managed organizations with lots of women. And uh, being a superintendent of schools, more than half of the staff, of the 600 staff, were women. Uh, So uh, I think that was part of why they also invited me to join. And so my work was futures planning, and then it became uh, working with gender issues, and then that that expanded into race and sexual orientation over the next, well, let's see. I, I continued that work from the early 80s until 2014 was the last... Well, session I did. So, what was, was it?
0: What did it feel like to be in it? Was that immediately exciting? Was it daunting to say, well, now I'm going to work in gender issues and then race? Daunting. Daunting. Yeah. I daunting.
1: mean, I, I didn't realize how much I was tuned in or not tuned in. And I had a lot, whole lot of learning to do about my entitlement as a male and particularly as a white male. Uh, and you're unconscious about entitlement. Uh, to some degree, as I was. And so a lot of it was, I was always partnered with, uh, and so that dialogue between myself and the partnership, and some of those partners were white women, some of them were women women of color, men of color, uh, and there were also uh, gay and lesbian folks. And so we had this dynamic. It was called New Dynamics and we were constantly working our own stuff at the same time that we would go out and work with organizations. You had to do your own work first.
0: And are you, I mean, is this, I mean, was there any part of you thought, I'm not going to do this. This isn't my, you know, this isn't my thing. Or is it just like, how could I say no to this chance to change and develop and expand? I mean, what, what was that? What's behind that yes to doing that work when you were asked to do the gender work that very first time? I could see how it would expand once we were in there, but and it was daunting. What, what was the lead in there that said yes?
1: Well, I, I really liked the way the group dealt with each other, the level of sharing uh, and the level of truth telling with each other and confrontation. Uh, I that dynamic in the room was exciting to me Um, for men and women to be able to to go to that level on a regular basis uh, I I was intrigued by it because I grew up in an era where there were all kinds of constraints on how men and women could be with each other uh, and who men could be who women could be and so to, to see them breaking through that as their work, um, it, it excited me. Uh, and, uh, and when I got into the idea that they actually saw me as a person who could help them uh, and be part of it, yeah, it was exciting. Yeah,
0: it's, yeah, it's I hear right it. And I imagine also being able to reflect and say, "Well, a lot of the people I am working with are women in the schools." Uh, I, I actually do have some experience here. I mean, I, I imagine that would have helped a little bit anyway to the part of the mind that.
1: Oh, it did. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't think I'd be. I had a reputation for being a good listener and accessible, so that was basic, uh, and. Uh, and even though I have my, you know, my, uh, what do you want to call it? Gender hangups and uh, stereotypes in my head and bias. I mean, I have all the crap that right. goes with it that I was brought up with. But I'm, I, I was more conscious of some of that than maybe some folks were because of dealing with and working with so many women. Uh, so uh, I had a lot more to learn. But uh, I guess I was willing to be vulnerable about it. it vulnerability was the key to the whole thing. Were, were, was I willing to open myself up uh, and, and, you know, a woman could say to me, you know, I'm tired of that bullshit, and I could sit there with it and hear her. Uh, oh. Yeah, so...
0: Do you think that was a lot because of the counseling that you had done, the listening with the um, uh, reevaluation counseling, or do you think that was um...
1: that was certainly part of it? Because my partners yeah. were usually women, uh, yeah, in that reevaluation counseling, and uh, but the, you know when you in a real sharing experience with people is so powerful. And when it happens across difference, especially gender or race or sexual orientation, uh it's a whole worlds open up.
0: Whole mm. worlds
1: open up. Across culture. I mean, I, you know, I had opportunities to to, to do go to, to Africa several times and work in different countries and be there and and to China. And you know, it was I just could feel uh, the the whole uh Sort of sense of what it meant to be a person, opening and opening and opening. So,
0: yeah. And. Uh... Wow, it feels. I can feel it in my body, and it's. So again, it, it seems almost connected to the. Almost feels like a body experience of the walls coming in, but in a positive way of the impact being kind of undeniable to be and that kind of opening, sharing. Uh, with others it was very exciting it was uh risky someone calling out bullshit you know i mean who knew how you would respond right so there's a there's an edge there but i I really hear you loving the context the being in the room with people of difference opening sharing I, i hear it
1: yeah it was it became one of the two fundamental fundamental dynamics of my life uh at that moment, and of course, the other one you know we talked about is where the the play and the creativity started to open up and uh, that and was when really
0: how how far into this the consulting were you when the when the play started what what's the timing of that
1: uh that, well actually uh it, it got set off in nineteen eighty five uh, I'd love
0: to hear that story, yeah.
1: We well like, I guess I'd have to share uh,
0: the trigger yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. but yeah, uh,
1: one of the things uh, I continue to do as well as doing the, the uh, diversity work is I continued the futures work, and I would take uh, teams of people who were in a creative in creative work uh, in the computer field and so forth, and I would take them off for multiple days and work with them to find out how we could improve the relationships between them and make the the creativity more free and flow more easily uh, between them. Anyway, I had a group uh, in a large computer company that I was with for eight days. And uh, at the last day, one of the, the men, and this was totally a male group, but one of the men came up to me and he said to me is we were ending I think there's some things uh, about you that you don't know about yourself Uh, and you know it was kind of a provocative statement and he handed me a set of papers and he said uh, I want you to read this This It's my partner's master's thesis and after you read it if you really want to give me a call and we'll go from here and I had no idea what it really was, except that it was tied to some a, a drawing I had done uh, during the session to illustrate what was happening. And so oh, you I have,
0: I have to interrupt and say, you have to share the drawing because as somebody oh. who loves to bring visuals into a conversation myself, okay. when you told me this, I, I will never forget it. I mean, it landed big because I thought the impact of bringing something visual that year, yeah, an eight day, an eight day conference with these people. So you're cooking. I mean, I'm imagining it's cooking. And the dynamics are out there to see. It's not a two-hour thing, right? You're getting into stuff, and then you go up to the board and draw what?
1: Well, we have we have flip charts in the room, and I had magic markers, and <laughs> and so I uh, I was we were struggling uh, with the relationship between the boss and some of the men in the room, uh, and so I went up to the flip chart and I drew a picture of a buffalo that was wounded and dying. You know, just a quick sketch, and there were wolves waiting for him to die, sitting around him. And then there were mice, out there just playing in the field. And I said, "I see some of you as the mice. I see some of you as the wolves, and I see you waiting for your boss to to die here. I mean, you're you're just almost you've cut him. You've you're, you know you've been cut off from him, and so." All of a sudden, after I drew that, people began to talk at another level of honesty in the room about things that had made them angry, uh, that the boss had done, and then uh, then with each other and the frustration. And so that dynamic of the picture and its effect in the room, I think is what caused Hal, who was the guy who gave me the paper to read, uh, to do that at the end. And so... I took that paper home and I was exhausted and I just tossed it on the table and it stayed there for a couple of days. And and then eventually after I'd rushed it, I sat there and started to read it. And I wasn't into that more than two or three pages and I started crying. Uh, And what it was was a description of a place that had been created by a woman called Kate uh, where adults could come in to a big loft, and the basic format was play, playing their way into parts of themselves and their creativity uh, in a very safe environment. And so I uh, kept reading that paper for several days. And finally, I knew I had to go away. Some, it was so traumatic and so deep that I. Went away to Nantucket Island for two weeks, and got a. You went
0: for two whole weeks.
1: Two whole weeks.
0: Wow, I didn't realize Island. that's a that's a serious that's a serious little time oh, away. You a,
1: taught... I, I don't know. It was totally intuitive, and I I found a motel It was during. What, what the did winter. your
0: What did your family say? Was it like, oh, sure, or uh, was it?
1: Well, that's another dynamic. I was separated at that moment.
0: Yep. So you could do that without, yeah. Um, So you had two weeks and you said, I'm going to take myself to Nantucket. I'm going offline.
1: Yeah. And uh, I found a a motel on the beach and uh, it was January. So it was very inexpensive. And I I stayed there and I used to walk the beach in the mornings. And then I built a stage in the room and I started creating characters. In fact, I I still have some of the characters I created. Cutouts. Uh, they're sitting here in a frame in front of me. Really? Yeah. That, that was 1985 uh, in January. Just at the turn, it was. It was actually through New Year's. Um, and uh, at the end of the two weeks of, of just being there and being with myself, I came back and called Hal and I said I want to meet Kate. Uh, and so Hal in uh, February, took me to a place called Roseland in Somerville, Massachusetts. It was a loft. Uh, And he, he led me up the stairs and I walked into this huge loft and all around the room were people, mostly women, playing with and involved in all kinds of activity with materials. You know, some of them were drawing, some of them were cutting things, some were playing with clay, some were constructing things, some were were dancing. Uh, it was, it, I just was stunned. And Kate said to me, uh, she said, go find a place where you're comfortable and hang out for a while, uh, and I'll talk to you later. And that's what I did. And... Uh, that started that was the beginning of uh, five years of going to roseland regularly and it It fundamentally changed the ground of my life
0: it, I it, hear that, it and I, I, can feel, I can imagine walking to a room um, you 've been involved in in pretty expansive conversations you 've made leaps. Um, you're operating at quite this kind of culturally high, you know, having gone through a superintendent and, uh, you know, big kind of big jobs, put it that way. And you walk into this room and it's like, Hey, find a place you're comfortable and hang out there for a while and see what's happening. I mean,
1: and I went over a pile of blocks and I started making things with the blocks and then I'd stop and look around the room and watch people doing things, and then I go back to the blocks. Um, and eventually, and what, how, did, Kate, you, Jane, how Kate?
0: did how did you how did you know it was safe? Like, was it safe the instant you walked in, or was it by spending time with the blocks and getting that nobody was, you know, uh, nobody was saying, you know, giving you direct evaluation or monitoring what you're doing? What what? Where did, where did she get this? How did you get that safe feeling the first time you were in there?
1: Well, one of the factors was that it was mostly women. And they were, I could tell they were enjoying themselves. I could tell they, you know, there would be laughter over here. And there was that kind of relaxed give and take going on. Uh, and uh, the room had a tone to it of uh it it was a playful spirit in the room and uh you know sometimes groups of men uh don't express themselves easily uh and then you don't quite pick up the mood of the room quickly but it was these women were so open and so involved i i felt safe in that room right from the beginning uh (laughs) And uh and of course being able to sit on the floor and play with blocks, you know, and have that I mean it was such a such a, a shift from you know, being in rooms where the dynamics in the room were pivoting around what you said or didn't say or and uh but that's not true anymore. I was just there. I was one
0: oh, of the kids. I- I can I could see it and and again it wasn't about words it was it was also one of the elements I imagine when I listened to you I go ah and it was wordless because a lot of the other situations it was word driven right what you how right, people respond yeah
1: and and, and a Kate did come over and and sit down beside me but her whole manner was you know she she'd sit with me and. And uh, beside whatever I'd messed around with were the blocks, and she would, say, and she said, uh, "You know, what do you, what, how do you feel about that? What do you see?" And I could just wander. I could talk about what it was felt like to, you know, the, you know, that whole thing about being back in kindergarten. I mean, I I did go to kindergarten as a kid. And sitting in a corner playing with blocks, what a wonderful thing. And it, I could, <laughs> that energy coming back, and I could talk, but I could talk with her like that, you know. And then I would start to cry. And, and well, that, that, that meant you know, that's just part of it. And so I'd talk and cry, talk and cry. And uh, I did a lot of crying at rosebud
0: <laughs> Wow. Uh,
1: but crying... Crying I really have come to understand is just so fundamental to opening up space inside you know it is its yeah, it is for me anyway so.
0: oh, it's so to me it can be so relaxing, and um it opens my heart, my heart shifts and opens when I'm with somebody in the studio and and they and they start to cry, and it feels like uh now we're in some i don't know uh, now we're in some kind of flow that has us, and we don't we're kind of in in, in the zone somehow're
1: so when I hear it yeah no, but the cry the crying is kind of a sometimes it's coming from grief, yeah, and sometimes it's coming from joy yeah. uh, and 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 they interchange, and so the grief part of it is you know maybe something a memory you had as a kid of something that you loved that was taken away or you lost. Uh, But then at the same time, the act of playing uh, is a joyful thing. And so the two go back and forth, you know, Uh, the kid memories and the play uh, interchange back and forth. Uh, So grief and joy both have tears, yeah. Yeah. And some laughter gets in there too.
0: I hear it. And I hear um, also uh, being with lots of women.
1: Yeah.
0: I, I mean, being in the room. Critical. and And I also hear the serendipity of um, I don't think Kate was, I think she was pretty unusual. I mean, I think she would be unusual still now. Um, yes. But in the 80s to be having this loft in Boston, right?
1: Yeah, It's a suburb of Boston. Yeah.
0: Yeah. To have this and that, you to have someone in this group who is mainly a a group of men. I think you said, and he passes you this paper that his partner just her master's thesis. I mean, that's kind of uh, wild. I don't know. I I, there is um, just the power of. I guess we can say we've been saying in this in our talk here, serendipity, but kind of the magic of simple in the things happening that you can't plan for. Um, that became two weeks in Nantucket that became five years in the studio, uh, you know, around a day, week or something. I know you said at some point, but it, so there you are. Um, so now you've got creativity. Now you've got, you've walked into play, like Full on, right now you've, you've you're in the room with play, and you've still got this consulting stuff going on. You're still in these conversations and this expansion, and now you've got uh this summerland or this this play shop. What? How how big of a change? You know, in in the scope of your life, what what was that in terms of change?
1: Oh wow, um, I. I I'm, I'm struggling <laughs> for a word because I uh, it um what what did um I'm trying to think of of a word that conveys uh you know a shift in your perception of your own life uh that uh it's kind of like a, an explosion from the inside out, realizing that the person that you have been is only a tiny part of who you really are. And it just starts to open up in all directions. And, uh, and, it, and, and with a situation like Roseland, it opens up, it does open up like an explosion. Uh, it's uh, and yet it's a it's a gentle explosion uh, a lot of the times uh, and it can also be scary because the ground that you thought was underneath you is going away uh, your you know the things you thought you control the things you thought were predictable about yourself they start going away uh and you start responding to things that you never dreamed uh, that you would respond to and you start talking to people you've never met before i don't exactly know how to how to how to frame it yeah, but
0: uh, i hear it uh, i hear it it's,
1: yeah it's and it, it and it was a multi-stage thing i mean uh, you know what happened when I joined the Princeton project. At to one degree, yeah. It happened when I uh, when I left the superintendency, to a, to a bigger degree. But then when I hit Roseland, I think I was ready for it, uh, even though it was dynamic and it was uh, breath. You know, sort of take your breath away. Uh, I was. Those other changes had made me ready. To open it up, uh, and uh, and it kept going from there. I have never been without a, a wall and a place to paint uh, since then, um, and uh, and of course, you know, the next chapter involves my partnership with Jay, which is another whole dynamic. So, uh,
0: well, and when you speak of your ground. Uh, and I, I think I referred to it with the wrong name before, but we're saying it's Roseland, right?
1: Roseland, yeah. That, Roseland, that,
0: yeah. When uh, when you speak of the shift and looking for a word of that shift of being and and saying the ground, I mean the picture I have is the ground underneath your feet not being the same. It's it's changed. Uh, your actual there's a sense of standing uh, has been changed. Like the ground has. Has changed.
1: Yeah, and, but there's an old song. What? How does that song go? The ground. I feel the earth move under I my feel feet.
0: the earth. Yeah. What uh, is that song? Under and, my the, feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. Something.
1: like that. Yeah. Well, anyways, that song uh, <laughs> right there.
0: Well, okay. So now, when we walk into your studio earlier today, and I see the words up there, the ground of being. Huh? And I can't help but go straight from that place at Roseland where the ground itself is changing and looking at your most recent, you know, your current, one of your current projects, I should say, uh, with this black painting and this, you know, and then some, and uh, having this sense of what is my ground of being, or I don't know how you put that, but I I can't help but go directly to the present moment, Bill. I mean, is there been a... Is this a direct continuation of that shifting of ground, or looking at the ground that you're standing on? And uh, is, are you at another shift here, or is this a continuation? What, where now, are we
1: there's just- another big shift that's in the midst of, uh, you know, I, you know, <laughs> coming to New Mexico is I, huge uh, because Mexico. I, um, I mean, I am in New Mexico you know, because of my relationship with Jay initially. But I lived in the mountains uh, up in El Valle uh, near Truches uh, for six years by myself, and I created my own studio up there. And that dynamic of being in a little village, a Hispanic village in the mountains, uh, and creating my own studio and painting uh day I mean, and then traveling you know I would travel 150 days a year. Wow and I would then I would be up there and and so that six years was pretty amazing. wow uh, in, I had no idea terms... you were up
0: there for that long. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, didn't realize yeah yeah I
1: came in nineteen ninety and Jay and I got married in ninety six. And I have to say that uh you know I owe I owe her a great deal of wisdom because I was coming out of a marriage that I've had been in for 32 years, and I it was important that I not jump into another marriage. She knew that, but being kind of male and you know ready to move on to the next thing, <laughs> uh, uh, she slowed me down, and we agreed that I would I would. Lived separate from her uh, for a while, and so that's. I mean, she even found the house up in El Baie. Uh Wow! Uh, but it was a great six years of for me to ground myself in the life that I had suddenly discovered.
0: Uh, what know. a beautiful, what a beautiful uh, insertion of wisdom at the right time in terms oh, of.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so she's another I, one you of your.
0: Uh, your, your there's another kind of infusion of uh, opening a space somehow with Jace, like slowing it down and, and helping you find a place up there. And um, wow, it feels like a very expanded Nantucket.
1: It was. It was exactly what it was. And uh, yeah, and it's you know one of the things that's beautiful about a journey, and we all have this, but the people who bring you the gifts. You know, people are, people are are bringing gifts into our lives all the time, but often we're so distracted or stressed that we don't notice what's being offered. Uh, And as I began to become more in tune with who I was, and I paid more attention to what was happening, the gifts were there, always the gifts were there, but I had to see them. I had to, you know, like Hal's gift of giving me the paper, you know. Now, I could have said, I'd just thrown the paper away, you know. I didn't have to read that. But, and in the midst of all the stress of doing this corporate work, uh, but but I was at a level where I had learned to listen more, pay more attention because you know, the world is full of treasure and we walk by most of it. Uh, so, yeah.
0: So that was, that was pretty much in you then also from how, I mean, at different points in your life that you, you would take stock and like something's being given to me here. I'm going to, I'm going to receive it. I'm going to, I'm going to open this paper up and read it. I'm going to give the space for it to move me, even though I'm in that much, you know, stressful, it's squarely quite beautiful. And, and, and New Mexico, would you say there was something particular that you noticed working on you, being in New Mexico with all that land? I mean, where you were, that's very land. Now, there's
1: a little piece about New Mexico that uh, I, I put in here. When I was 10, uh, my father ran out of work in Florida. We were living in a trailer park. And his, the war, war had just ended. It was 1946, and he needed to find more work. And so he had been told that there was construction work in Albuquerque. And so he hooked up the trailer to the car and headed for New Mexico. Uh, and so in, like, May of 1946, I was in a trailer park in Albuquerque. And one morning, I walked out. Everybody pretty much asleep. It was very early. The sun was just coming up. And I stood by the car and I saw the Sandia with the light behind it, those mountains. And I've never forgotten it. It just lit me up. Uh, And so when Jay and I started exploring to figure out where we might go from New Hampshire, uh, and we ended up, in Truchas, and that's another whole story. In New Mexico, visiting, uh, I was back into something that it was wow. sort of magic that uh, that was I've been holding since I was ten years old, and uh, by then I was fifty something.
0: Does does that land that experience in the Albuquerque? Uh, you said it was Albuquerque trailer park because you were with the trailer and your dad was getting the construction work. Was that like another? kind of dreamscape, waking dream, because it feels like something that's out of time when you speak it. The Sandias, you know, lit and you there and it it touching something that, uh, I don't know, felt very, feels very potent when you share it now. I'm just wondering if that...
1: Yeah, I, you know, as a matter of fact, I revisited that experience about three weeks, three months ago because I went into a movement, an improv movement workshop in uh, Corrales. And I was sitting in the living room. I stayed overnight and I was facing the Sandia. Oh my gosh. And with the sun coming up and I was suddenly reliving that whole business of what happens to the sun as it rises behind those mountains and all the shifts in color and change and so forth. Uh, And that happened about three months ago. and. yeah, definitely. It was a piece of magic. There's no question about it. Yeah. yeah.
0: New Mexico. Now, for me, New Mexico is 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 where I discovered I loved pink and orange. You know, and I'll never forget the first time I really took in a sunset in Santa Fe and realized. I was just struck and I just started painting everything peak and orange, like window sills and walls. And, and, I, and um, then I kind of found my favorite color and I went from there and painted part of my truck, you know, the campers. you know, it kind of something caught. And there was a magic to it, an opening. So when I hear you, I, I come from that place of there was something particular about New Mexico. I had traveled around the world and different things. When I hear you, something there's something... And it sounds like it worked with Jay, too, because you both moved here, yeah? But it, it's like, what, what, do you think New Mexico has particularly heightened something or accelerated something? Or what do you think at this point, when you see the role New Mexico has had, that you would even say it being, you know, the way it is?
1: You know, if I had to pick out... I mean, besides the physicalness of the space... I would say most of my growing up was in New England, all right? And New England uh, has uh, a particular kind of culture and way in which people relate to each other. Uh, It has, you know, a Puritan heritage. uh, And I love New England, uh, but there's a tightness to it. And when I came out here and I moved up to Albayi, I was in another culture. It wasn't my culture. It was like I'd stepped into a, a, an entirely different world, and the, the way the, the Hispanic folks were relating to each other was totally new to me. And there, you know, and there was a way in which being up in those mountains, uh, and I, what I was really doing was shedding some of the tightness of New England. Uh, an opening to both a geographic and a cultural difference. And, uh, and so it, it almost was an extension of Roseland, you know, Mm. I was in a place where people were living day-to-day lives in different patterns uh, than I had seen before uh, been around. So yeah, it's uh, yeah. I think, in my sense is that a lot of Anglos who come to New Mexico step out of the, the... They have the gifts of their culture, but they also step out of some of the constraints of their previous culture. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's, uh, and it, it's, it's, it's what happens when we travel around the world. I mean, it's, that's part of the experience of travel. You step out of...
0: Definitely, a lot of
1: assumptions about how. Definitely, out of
0: assumptions, uh, yeah. cultural agreements. You realize, yeah. oh wow, um, <laughs> that's not that how we're working work. That it was work. That was your doing work. it in rooms. <laughs> I, I was going to say there. There's something about this expansion of uh, bigger spaces or spaces that aren't um, uh, uni. You know, uni featured uh, seems to be a super big, big theme here, and enjoying that, and. Um, I don't know, and it, it sounds very relationship oriented. I mean, you, you don't sound alone in El Valle, yeah. It 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 no. it not it, it doesn't yeah. It and there you are with lots of nature, lots of space, not in the kind of peopled environment. I I, I you know that you would get in where you had been before. So here you are in New Mexico, and um, what about the ground? Your ground, would you say? Um, do you, what did you think you have found ground wise in New Mexico? I mean,
1: yeah. Are you talking about psychic ground or physical ground? Yeah.
0: Well, I guess I was thinking psychic ground, or you know what we feel is underneath our feet as we're walking around.
1: Well, it's literally different. I yeah. mean, the I mean, El Valle is at eight thousand feet, and uh, and it's a it's an alpine location. It's right in front of Trompers Peak. And so when I'd go out to walk in the morning, I was walking through pine forests, you know, and up through the village and the pine forests uh, in a totally different physical environment. Uh, and uh, and so that was different. And then the people in the village who were very helpful to me and so forth. But what we ta- when I go into their home, uh, what they wanted to talk about with their families, they wanted to talk about the kids and their and what people were doing, and there 'd be pictures on the wall and I know that that 's in other cultures, but there was such it 's a bit of magnified in the Hispanic yeah. culture' talking about all those relationships and and to share that with a total stranger and and uh, and so I was being reoriented uh, to something, both, you know, the ground under my feet physically, but also what I was paying attention to between people uh, was changing, too. And then I had some friends and truches that Jay and I had made when we first came in. And there is, a, if you want to see a ser- serendipitous activity, how we ever came to truches, you know, we... <laughs> we took a we took a ride out to New Mexico out to the west to explore in August of 1988. And uh, we just before we left, we watched the Moragro Beanfield War at the town hall in Wilton, New Hampshire. And we just were out wandering in New Ham- in uh, New Mexico and we were driving up and we came to the overlook above Truchas yeah, we've gone through, and we're sitting in this overlook, and these two guys, uh, uh, Dennis and Rudy, we came to know them. They were two people who had been born and brought up in Trujillo, and they, Jay and I, are sitting there eating a watermelon. These two guys drive <laughs> up, and they are standing over there, and finally they walk over to us the and they said, "Are you going to share your watermelon?" And uh-huh. This, this dialogue starts. We end up staying overnight in, at their home in Truchas and ex- and then we we had this whole adventure in Trujas, and uh, and they became friends of of ours, and they helped build my studio in El Valle. And I, <laughs> anyway, it just uh,
0: wow. Now that to me is the New Mexico welcoming you in story. I. I I have my own yeah, story, and it's not true for everybody, right? It's not true. Some people don't have that, but there you are. And um, where you are now, right? In uh, Mednales, Abiquiu um, area, you've got your studio. Um, what's your sense now? Do you have a... Um, what conversation do you find yourself in now, primarily? I mean, where are you now? You've got the, your painting and your writing. And I'm wondering how the writing started being creative. Was that um, the painting? It sounds like it came first.
1: Yeah, by a long time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think I really started focusing on on writing uh, until probably about five years ago. And, uh, and actually... Um, part of it had to do with, um, with Leslie Kempis. Yeah. Uh, she started doing writing workshops and she started doing them at the gallery, uh, when we had the gallery uptown in Abiquiu. And, uh, and then, you know, now she does them here at our house. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and then we also formed a, what we call a poetry group, which is another sort of a, uh, a fluctuating group that uh, meets at the house just about every week in the evenings and talks about her. So a real catalyst for me for my writing was, you know, being in Leslie's group plus the poetry group. And then I also had been working for years with Alicia, Alicia Allen. She's mm-hmm. been kind of a life coach to me. Mm-hmm. And one day she said to me, after we'd been hanging out for 10 years or so, she said, what if you wrote a story about, of of your life, as if it didn't have the constraints that you started with as a child? And those constraints, of course, were the conditions of the 40s, the gender stereotypes, uh, there limitations financially because we grew up pretty poor and so forth, and so she said, "You know, just start start and see where it goes. Well, I created a can count a, a character called who eventually became Anson, and I first pictured him as an old man, and then I went back to his childhood and i 've written about you know, 25, 30 years of his life. And that really opened my writing. I mean, I, I never wrote two or 300 pages sustained story before. That was totally new to me. And I had this tremendous momentum when I did it. Uh, and I'd share chapter by chapter in the writing groups. And the sharing, you know, was that, that was critical.
0: So. Mm. And I hear, I hear the the thread of sharing through the years. How powerful that is, and it, and that's bringing us. I didn't realize how recent the writing uh, has been for you the last five years or so.
1: Oh yeah, it's been very central. Yeah.
0: And and what do you, what was your painting life or your creative play life uh, through those years before writing? Where were you? I know you built a studio where you were. And El Valle. So, I mean, is that something that you were doing as a primary thing? Was it fit around the rest of your life? I mean, what, what role did that have? Yeah.
1: The painting was central. I would say that ever since I walked into Roseland, painting has been the central activity in my life. Uh, That wall in my studio here in Abbeque, I've been in front of that wall for 23 years. And, uh, you know, I, it's been fundamental to who I am. Uh, the pe- the writing came in and added another whole dimension. Uh, it certainly didn't replace the painting. It just opened up another dimension of who I am.
0: Uh, I'd love to have, I think we need a whole nother conversation about this intersection of the writing and the painting. But I, I, I think I'd love to get a sense of right now, what's what's got your interest most with the painting? Because um, I know I get to. Play with you with paint sometimes in my studio. And um, I know this current piece you're working on, but what, what's driving it now, would you say, your painting life after this many years? I, I'm going to say, I happen to know that. Um, well, just, yeah, what has driven your painting life, would you say? Would you think it's changed what's driven it? Um, or do you feel I like it's. I been-
1: have a, st- a statement that I make to myself, uh, and it says, I will go wherever it takes me. Uh, which means that I don't think about my painting as producing products uh, for sale or that kind. I mean, I have no reticence to sell a painting, but I don't... It's leading me. The painting is Mm -hmm. leading me. Uh, It goes where I go where it goes. And... um, it, uh, would would it you, means... you say that's been
0: true through the years, Bill? Would you say that's that line has been true for you? Um, it started
1: since... that way, and then there was a point where I was thought I was going to take it into some pretty highly skilled, uh, realistic work. Mm-hmm. I painted, I copied a couple of Russian paintings, uh, which were, every time I look at them, I say, "Whoa, did I that? That was quite a." a level of painting for me uh, They're, you know, they're five feet by six feet, seven feet. And, uh, they, but, um, but somehow the whole business of it taking me, and then the flowers came into my life, you know, and pretty soon mm. everything I wanted to, to, uh, make was had flowers and then it became more abstract. And in the last few years, I think it's returned more and more and more uh, to the kid playing with the blocks on the floor, except I'm playing on the wall uh, with paint. And some of it is, if you look at it, it's, you know, some of them it's gravel on a wall. I mean, I, I've done all kinds of, um, you know, I did a couple of performances, uh, improv and, and one of them I called the dump and i yes, literally I was there. buried yeah. myself in a dump and uh, and i think of my painting like the dump you know i just
0: no i have I, to interrupt yeah. you when you were doing uh, some years ago when you were really into the flowers um did it have much to do with the dump then or was it about beauty was it about color what was the drive with flowers was it joy was it a femininity coming in i think in? It,
1: well, maybe maybe the femininity was there because I was uh, I probably was also dancing more. I mean, moving, uh, but uh, but uh, but I th- I think it was the beauty of the flowers. I was yeah. I wanted to be able to you know convey that beauty that is so. You know, it's gone, and you know there's the, there they are, and then they're gone, just like us. So uh, I wanted to hold on to it a little bit. Yeah.
0: And so then, was then, it? Then, w- yeah. Was it partly the ephemeral quality then of the flowers that drew you to them, or was it wanting to capture it so it was more eternal? Do you know? I mean.
1: Uh. Well, it started out. I think as more eternal yeah but then it be, but, but then i began to the they got looser and looser uh, the yeah flowers, and I was seeing some yeah. flowers that were falling you know the, the petals were falling off and uh you know so i i had i became less and less invested in the ephemeral and more and more and something that was natural the way things would go just you know.
0: and now now, right? You're a kid playing with blocks uh, again. Um, I, I actually, I had never really followed it so closely in terms of, you know, how the flower paintings would start then falling apart more or the blooms dropping and the, uh, the natural process of the death process too, right? The, uh, the whole uh, flowers, I see how you moved with the flowers, and now here you are playing on the floor. I, I mean, metaphorically. So there was a
1: stage of painting moving water that was pretty. Uh, I did do quite a few stream paintings. Yeah, because I was going to retreats up in uh, Viacitos, and a stream was there, and I would I was very much into flowing water. In fact, I wrote a song called "Time and the River Flows," and mm. so I think. Uh, The river paintings were kind of a transition into flow uh, from the flowers. I mean, it isn't one stopping and the other starting. But but I think from the the river paintings, I began to go into more, you know, just playing with stuff. And a lot of collage. I've done a lot of collage. Mm. Pieces of stuff and dirt and paper and, you know,
0: stuff. What gets you to the canvas now? So let's get really current. You wake up now, it's not gonna be a writing morning, it's gonna be a painting morning. What 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 gets you there? What's got your interest? What's
1: well the thing, the impulse is there as I was gonna go out to we have a little dump where we throw old wood. Mm-hmm. And I will my next I can feel it, as I want to find another piece of rotting plywood and do another uh, Painting, which will have dirt and stones and rotting plywood, and uh, it'll probably be totally black in color, but it'll have a lot of texture in it, and that's where my energy is right this minute, and it it's it's because I'm keep getting deeper and deeper into you know the the ground of my own, I call it the ground of being, yeah, right
0: yeah. Right. i saw those you know words in your studio so that was it really got me going when you when you spoke with the ground um, at roseland so you have it, like you'll get a call from it sounds like this one is a material right the rotting wood the rotting plywood and the black and um and then it, this like uh following wherever it's going to take you right i'm hearing that Yeah,
1: so wherever uh, you know? it goes yeah
0: where i follow wherever it goes you know there's uh A wise person that I consider wise that I know said um, there was one point in his life when he realized that if he just said yes to life, and this gives me tears, but if he just said yes to life, he knew um, in that moment that life would take care of him.
1: Hmm. Well, I guess that's part of what I I meant by the gifts. mm -hmm. You know, we have these gifts coming from inside and outside to us all the time. But it requires a yes. And uh, in fact, when Jay and I first came together, we had this quote from Martin Buber, mm-hmm. uh, who was another famous theologian, mm-hmm. in which he's talking about saying yes uh, to life. Uh, and that became sort of fundamental to us about that yes. So that, mm. yeah, that's yeah.
0: Well, I think that's, I feel like, I'm winding down today and I've got a whole slew of questions about what's going on really now with you and your studio and with the writing, but let's, let's have another conversation, shall we? And let's.
1: Yeah, fun. That was, uh, I enjoyed doing that. Yeah. and uh,
0: Thank you uh, yeah. so much.
1: Whenever, whenever we're ready, let's do it.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Do you happen to have something that you wrote um, that was at that available to you? And if you don't, that's totally fine. I'm just throwing this at you at the last year. But there was something that you passed out at the dump performance. Yeah. And it was on these pages and I have it up in my studio. And it was, I think, The Waves, something about The Waves.
1: Oh, yeah. It's downstairs.
0: Okay, it's all right, then. We'll share that in another one. But um, is there anything that you've written that you want to share at the end here that's at your fingertips or that you Well,
1: there is a poem that I did in my first performance that I would love to share, but it's downstairs, too.
0: Is it? All right. Hold on one second. Let's pause. We'll come right back to it. Great. So, Bill, you're going to read us. What are you going to read us?
1: Okay. uh, this is a poem that I read at the end of my first uh, performance where I actually put together movement and painting and music in an improv setting. So that was in 19, my 75th year, I think I did that. It was 75, the first one I did. And so that's, uh, that's where I, this poem ended the performance.
0: Beautiful, thank you. Let's, let's hear.
1: It's entitled, that which is extraordinary. I don't dance because of some special agility or skill, or even to please or entertain you. I dance because my legs want to feel, want to feel the beat on the floor. I dance because I am alive. Each step is a yes to that extraordinary gift. I don't sing to display a voice, or so you will prod a talent. I sing because my heart desires to hear the music within me. I sing because I am alive. Each note is a yes to that extraordinary gift. I don't paint so that you will see me, though that may happen. I paint blossoms that will never fade and apples that will never fall. I paint because to paint is to touch, to mark the only moments that are mine. I did write this poem for you and I, because you said I can't sing or dance or paint or write or, and as I have often done, I write this because we are alive and each word is a yes to that extraordinary gift.
0: Thank you, Bill. Well, that's today's podcast of Creative at the Wheel. Before we go, I want to thank you for listening, and I invite you to tune in again. You can listen to more of these podcasts on SoundCloud, on my Creative at the Wheel channel. You can learn more about my one-on-one coaching for creatives on my website, paintbiglivebig.com.